New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Alan Watts was a British-born American philosopher, writer, speaker, and countercultural hero, best known as an interpreter of Asian philosophies for Western audiences. He wrote over 25 books and numerous articles applying the teachings of Eastern and Western religion and philosophy to our everyday lives. He was a gifted speaker and could stand at a podium without notes and deliver a lecture with such lucidity as to leave his audience spellbound. He died in late 1973. Today we'll be speaking with his daughters, Joan and Ann Watts. They are the two eldest daughters and the firstborn children of the late Alan Watts. Before his death and for a very brief moment, he served on the Board of Advisors of New Dimensions Radio. We're fortunate that he has left many recordings that have been archived by his son, Mark Watts, which you can find at alanwatts.org. Now we can be inspired to take a deep dive into his colorful and controversial life with the publication of the book, The Collected Letters of Alan Watts, curated and edited with extensive comments by his daughters, Joan and Ann Watts. Join us for the next hour as we explore the life and legacy of Alan Watts with our guests, Joan and Ann Watts. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. And Joan, welcome. Thank you. Thanks Glad so to be here. It's great to have you. This is just a, an extensive book. It was just such a pleasure to go through it, and especially to have you hold our hand through it with both of your comments throughout all these incredible letters. So what I would love for you to share with us is in doing this project and putting this book together, how did it change you? Many of the letters were written long before you were born even. So can you each speak to that? Anne, could you could you speak to that? Um, it's interesting when you say change you, I'm not so sure that it changed me per se, but it certainly changed a lot of my perceptions. And um, first of all, to uh, be reading letters that he wrote when he was in his early 20s and to have to stop and figure out how old were you when you wrote this? Because his writing is already so brilliant and so mature. 
And, um, and that really struck me. I, I was so taken by his, by his brilliance and eloquence. And um, I loved the way he could write. And it, a lot of his writing is often like he's painting a picture when he's traveling around in the country and he's writing to his parents, describing what he's seeing. It's like you could just be there with him. And, um, and then it, part of it was as going through when I was born in my early childhood, um, it was a confirmation for me because I always believed that memory is really suspect. We don't always remember things the way things actually unfolded. So we, we have our memories of what it was like and different people have different memories of those same times. So for me, when he writes about my childhood, he could see the uh, struggles that I was having with first my mother and then my stepmother. And uh, it was really clear that he saw it. Mm -hmm. And that affirmed for me my, my story, what I carry as my story. Thank you. And Joan, you were the oldest. Right. And what was your experience of putting this all together and going through these letters well, I have to say the the first part uh, when he they first came to the United States in 1938, which was when I was born, um, it was quite a surprise. Uh, his descriptions of me and so on, um, growing up, uh, the clothes I was wearing, how I behaved, the things that I did, it was all uh, totally amazing to me. I mean, and when you think that he was only 23 years old when I was born and had had absolutely no experience with small children at that point, um, it was quite a jump for him. And um, uh, that, you know, went on for the first 10 years of uh, my life. And then gradually, uh, you know, I was sent off to boarding school when my parents were divorced, and so I didn't see him as much. Uh, but it was interesting in the letters to see him constantly commenting about me or what I was doing, even as married mm -hmm. person and when my children were born and so on. So it, it was an amazing chronicle of our lives. And then in addition to that, um, from his early times, I was just amazed at what a scholar he was. I had no idea in a way that he was really an amazing scholar. He took on Latin and Greek and was well-versed in that and uh, continued with, you know, the very inroads of Christian doctrine that a lot of people, that probably most uh, priests or clergy still know nothing about, Alan had uh, found. And then, of course, with his interest in uh, Eastern philosophy and his scope of interest in it. It wasn't just Zen, it was Taoism and Vedanta and all other types. You know, I, and, and as you're saying that, I'm reminded when he was very young, I think he was 14 years old, he wrote, and you have a letter that he wrote to Christmas Humphreys, known as Toby. Describe that correspondence because it just it blew my mind, <laughs> and it blew Toby's mind too when he finally right. met him. Well, it was it was very interesting because he um, 
was interested in Eastern philosophies, and he had gone to a bookstore in London where he frequented uh, and went through their books and so on. He was especially interested in uh, Asian art and uh, Asian philosophies. And and looking through one book, he found this pamphlet about the Buddhist Society of London. And um, he had just written a pamphlet on Zen. I think he was about 15 when this happened. Um, so he contacted... Uh, uh, Christmas Humphreys at uh, the Buddhist Society uh, sent him a copy of this little booklet and then was called to come and give a lecture. And of course, they were expecting uh, a grown man, and what they got was a 15 year old boy. And they were quite shocked. But it was a wonderful relationship because Christmas Humphreys basically took him under his. Uh, wing and um, nurtured that interest and he continued there. He eventually became editor of the society. His father was very interested and went to lectures with him and his father eventually became the treasurer of the society. So it, it became quite Alan's a family father, thing. Lawrence. Yes, uh-huh. right. Mm-hmm. Now, also in the book, it, it was amazing that he wrote so many letters to his parents. He kept up a correspondence. You, you get a chronology of his whole life through, through his devotion to his parents and writing, even writing when he first uh, came to America in 1938. Of course, the war had just started, and, and so he's writing back to his parents, and they are going through World War II. They're going through bombings. They're mm-hmm. going through rationing. They're going through having to go to shelters. And can you speak, either one of you, about that? Well, his letters constantly show his concern and um, just asking questions about how they're doing, how's it going. Could his father not be out so much? His father was a block captain, and he would wear a helmet and be watching for any sign of any bombings or anything, and then they'd go to their bomb shelters when that happened. I guess he was called a warden. And I remember as a child, and he writes about this, he what they need, and he do these gift packages of uh, food w- that they were short of in the in England, and he would send them food and whatever supplies they badly needed. What was it like for the two of you when uh, you finally met your grandparents? They came over to America. When what, what year was that? Mm, about nineteen forty. 40- Five forty-six, okay, somewhere so in there. You know, we have the, there's a, included in the uh, center section of the book. There's pictures, and there's a wonderful family portrait of us uh, as little girls uh, with our grandparents there. And I think you know we found our grandmother probably very quiet, very formal. Mm-hmm. Our grandfather was a little more relaxed. They were wonderful people to us, for, exactly. s- for certain. And what about your grandmother on your other side, Ruth Sasaki? Is that mm-hmm. Describe a little bit of her, because that, that was an amazing woman. Well, she was kind of the complete opposite of the other grandmother in many ways. I mean, she was also very formal in, a, in many senses, but she was... Uh, 
she came from uh, a lot of wealth, which our English grandparents did not. And um, she uh, would land on our doorstep for vacation, you know, to come visit at Christmas or whatever. And she would be dressed in her tweed suits and silk blouses and fine furs and sensible shoes and and she had so she had an interest in Asian. Her background was was in the Asian studies, right? Right, Zen Buddhism. Yes, right. If she um, had a, had studied Asian religions and philosophy in school, and uh, when she married, she had she it was an arranged marriage to a very famous Chicago lawyer. He was also very wealthy, so she had her wealth and his wealth. Mm -hmm. And they would travel extensively, so they traveled in China and Japan, among other places. And it really deepened her um, her interest. She met D.T. Suzuki in Japan, and Suzuki told her that he thought she should come and spend time in Japan to immerse herself in the study of Zen, which she ultimately did. Joan and I are very excited because um, a woman by the name of Janica Anderson got really interested in... Gary Snyder had done a bunch of t tapes interviewing Ruth. She then got interested in... Janica got interested in studying Ruth. Great. So there's a whole book on that called right. Zen Odyssey. Uh, I'm here with Anne and Joan Watts, the daughter of daughters <laughs> of Alan Watts. If you want to know more about the work of Anne and Joan Watts, then you can go to annwatts.com, and spell with an E on the end, A-N-N-E, Watts, W-A-T-T-S.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Anne and Joan Watts. They are the daughters of Alan Watts, and they have edited and curated, with also extensive comments, a book of his collected letters, the collected letters of Alan Watts. In going through this book and going through these letters, it really showed how very open he was in, I guess you would say in the Zen sense, the don't know mind. He remained curious and he remained open to questions. And I'd love for you to talk about that and how he represented that in some of his letters. And Yeah, he was always learning something new and voraciously. 
And he also wrote letters where he would talk about what he was thinking at the time. And he wrote really long letters, pages and pages, because he loved to write. He was constantly apologizing for the length of his letters. But I found um, in one of the letters that he wrote um, to a Mrs. Walter back August 21st, 1950. And I'm just going to quote a little bit of it. If I may quote from the preface of The Supreme Identity... I am not one of those who believes that it is any necessary virtue in the philosopher to spend his life defending a consistent position. It is surely a kind of spiritual pride to refrain from thinking out loud and to be unwilling to let a thesis appear in print until you are prepared to champion it to the death. Philosophy, like science, is a social function, for a man cannot think rightly alone, and the philosopher must publish his thought as much to learn from criticism as to contribute to the sum of the wisdom. I shall continue to write because it's my nature. The supreme identity will be out in September and represents an intermediate stage between behold the spirit and what I think now. What shall I think tomorrow? I don't know. The whole fun of life is that it's full of new surprises and new things to learn, provided you are willing to keep on growing and not settle into a rut. Hmm. There he is. And and when he says supreme identity, that's a book, right? Right. That's one of his books, as is Behold the Spirit. And Behold the Spirit, Yeah. 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 And so he's really stating there that it's important to put your ideas out there, but partially to have a dialogue about them, not to say these are set in stone. Right, exactly. And I think this is a great expression of his fluidity. And I think that sometimes he was uh, criticized for not doing what he was saying he would never do, being static and being, you know, just championing something that he'd written really early on. Um, and he, there were letters in which he commented on, you know, the earlier books that he felt like he no longer represented him. <laughs> so, you know, that was that was always his way is to keep curious and keep open and keep moving. And his letters are great dialogues with people. Right. Yeah. We criticize people like if they don't live up always to their values that they espouse, and then they fall off that pedestal that we put them on, and then we throw out everything else that they've done. It's kind of our natural human nature to be living a life that is varied, and it's going to have its ups and downs. He wasn't always a great person as far as, let's say, his relationships. He had three marriages. He had many affairs. I mean, in these days, in this climate, he would be totally pillared for that. And rightly so, in in, in this climate, it's absolutely shifting uh, the way that we are, women and men, are right now. Uh, but that doesn't take away from the wisdom that he just wrote there. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm always saying he he fought being put on a pedestal because he thought it was ridiculous. He didn't want to be on a pedestal. And he would call himself a philosophical entertainer. Um, And I think, you know, he really was aware of his own humanness and uh, that people had rigid thoughts about how people are supposed to be. And it doesn't allow for people's humanness. 
And my feeling is that, yes, he was addicted to alcohol and he was addicted to women. And he was a kind, caring man, um, always. And uh, his work stands for itself. Mm -hmm. When people tell my Joan and me all the time that his work has made a difference in their lives, that's worth a lot. And it still goes on. We hear from teenagers today that they've discovered Alan Watts and what a difference he's making for them. I think that's truly exciting. Right. I would like to uh, talk about, let's, let's give an example. You mentioned at some point three different letters that were written, and, and they, they all covered different subjects. This is in the mid-1960s, and one of the letters he wrote to Margaret Rioche, and she was a psychotherapist, and he was going to give a lecture, mm -hmm. and she was kind of concerned about his coming in and talking about LSD or psychedelics, and she was concerned about that. And he said, well, here's what I'm going to talk about. And he, he wrote to her, and he said um, he talked about psychology, could be involved in a neurological manipulation of the brain and controlling of the genes of our genetic code. He wonders who would have the authority and wisdom to make such a decision of neuropolitics. So he was thinking at that time, 1960, about the manipulation of our brain through whatever. Mm -hmm. Is there some comment you have <clears throat> about that? Well, interestingly, uh, Margaret Rioche's uh, husband was a, a brain specialist, um, and Alan, you know, had uh, a lot of interest in how the brain functioned. He also was friends with Carl Pribram from Stanford University, who was another brain uh, specialist. I think he was concerned, you know, to foretell how science would proceed with their knowledge on these things. And of course, in this day and age, we have clones now, um, not of humans yet that we know of anyway, but certainly of animals. And it's, it's kind of a, a scary thing because um, it's almost like going back to Germany in World War II with Hitler, who uh, was uh, so... Uh, adamant about getting rid of certain types of people that he felt were inferior. And um, we don't want to be in that state again, you know. And I think that that was something that really concerned him. So he was questioning that even then. The second letter that I want to mention is something uh, a woman wrote to him about being just terrified of flying in small planes. And he does this long letter back to her of, of an example of what she can do to alleviate that fear. Can you, either one of you, describe that? Well, I think that's, it's a great example of his kindness to people to begin with, that um, he would uh, take the time in his busy day. I mean, he would get many, many letters to read and that he would, you know, not even be able to answer because he didn't have time. But I think he was very uh, careful with her and wanted to really help her and gave the example of a friend that had had problems with flying. He explains to her what the process would be. 
So let's share a little bit of his response to this woman who was afraid of flying. And do you want to help us out with that? Yeah, he um, he writes about having a friend who was terrified of spiders, in particular black widow spiders. She was terrified of all spiders, um, and they were constantly around where she lived in the wood pile and in her shoes and things like that. And so she bought a book on spiders and read up everything known about black widows. She got colored slides of them from the National History Museum and some specimens of the creatures encased in plastic from a biological supply firm. These last she studied carefully with a magnifying glass. Then she managed to capture a live specimen with a tumbler and watched it closely too. As a result, she lost her fear of them entirely. She understood their habits, knew how not to anger them, knew what precautions to take before putting feet or fingers into places where they might lurk. In the end, she felt quite friendly to them and to spiders in general. And so then he goes on and tells this lady, you, therefore, should purchase a book on small aircraft and learn to identify all of the different types. Take a few afternoons at the Santa Barbara airport, and if at all possible, make friends with someone who owns one and take a ride. Get an aircraft map of the whole area. They're really terribly interesting. And know where all the ports are and all the standard routes. You should get the magazines on small aircraft that are on sale, etc. Anyway, he's just really encouraging her to use the same kind of technique that the woman who was scared of the spiders used to get over her fear of airplanes. And I just think it's so lovely that he was so caring and that he took the time out of his life to be so specific uh, in helping her out. It's a really lovely thing. And and his whole idea is to, to go into your fear rather than to reject it and say, oh, I should avoid this because that's not going to solve the problem. Right. right. He finishes by saying, if you can't lick them, join them. <laughs> <laughs> right. There you go. There you go. Yeah. And the third letter in that whole series, close to that series, um, was a letter that he wrote to Peggy Morrison about the church and family. And this was, uh, he was really talking about when in biblical times it was an agrarian society, and he was really complaining about how, well, the church in the Bible might say this, but we've got to look at it in modern day. And he even used the phrase something like, uh, home these days is merely a dormitory. What did he mean by that? I I think he meant um, that uh, families have little discourse anymore and don't work together. Um, children are sent off to school where they're taught things that might not be even helpful to the family, per se, um, and that uh, people uh, don't really talk to each other anymore. You know, the kids mm -hmm. come in and... Uh, maybe watch TV and uh, parents come their, in and they're in this day iPhones. they're on their iPhones okay. but even back then there was uh, television and friends and so on that they didn't spend time and of course father was gone all day and come home in the evening and be tired and not want to uh, participate in <clears throat> the care of the children particularly and so it was, you know, it, it's changed so much from when 
families work together, uh, uh, raising crops, uh, raising animals, whatever they did uh, as an agrarian society. So there must be some adjustments made that we need to look at that. I'm here with Anne and Joan Watts. Uh, They're the daughters of the late philosopher Alan Watts, and they are the curator and curators and editors of the book, The Collected Letters of Alan Watts. And they also have a lot of commentary in the book itself, so they hold our hands as they take us through all of his letters. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm Justine Willis-Toms, and I'm here with Joan and Ann Watts. They are the two eldest daughters and the firstborn children of the late Alan Watts, British-born American philosopher and countercultural hero. I would love for you, there's a flavor that will give us an idea of the way his mind worked and very early on. And there's a letter that he wrote. I think he was 21 years old, and he wrote to Carl Jung. Uh, so, Anne, can you share with us that letter? I found this letter amazing. And, you know, it's another one of those ones I had to look. October 17th, 1936. So he's writing to Dr. Jung, and, and he says, Dear Sir, I was rather surprised to hear you say in your lecture at Caxton Hall last night that you had never found any mandalas with six divisions. Of course, the Buddhist wheel of life is almost always divided into six, but perhaps you have some reason for not regarding this as a mandala in the strict sense of the word. I am enclosing herewith a reproduction of a Tibetan wheel of life, which you may like to add to your collection if you have not already got it. Apart from the six divisions, another feature which distinguishes it from the usual mandala is its center. Almost all of the examples you showed, except some produced by pathological cases, had at the center some kind of holy of holies, a temple, an egg, or a golden ball. The Buddhist wheel, however, has a cock, a snake, a hog. The symbols of lust, raga, ill will, dosa, and stupidity, moha. I have never come across any instance of its being used for magical purposes. Probably it is only used as a formal representation of the six worlds of samsara, a picture rather than a symbol. The unusual center, however, seems to mark it as an essentially world-denying picture. That is to say, enlightenment or individuation does not consist of going into the center of the circle, but in escaping from it altogether. The letter goes on, but what was amazing to me was that he writes to Jung at the age of 21 as a complete equal, offering him some information that he felt 
that Jung didn't have. And uh, so I was really struck by that. It is quite wonderful to think of his confidence there. And he's not, he's not bragging. He's not saying, oh, you're wrong. But he's saying, here's some information you don't have. And he has, you could tell that he has gone deeply into this at right. 21. He yeah. had a deep understanding and had thought about it and had studied it and, and had some sort of understanding. Exactly. Yeah. I thought it was just amazing. Yes. Yeah. There's another letter that you might share. Now we're going to skip way ahead, and we're kind of skipping in different places in the book. That he, here he's talking, writing about Native Americans much later. And uh, and can you share a little bit about that? Um, I'd love to because this is an issue close to my own heart. And what's so interesting to me is how pertinent, once again, it is to the, our present time. This letter was written September 16, 1967, to the Honorable Henry M. Jackson, United States Senate, Washington, D.C. Dear Senator Jackson, many thanks for your kind letter of August 15th with information about S1816. I wrote for information because the enclosed statement was given to me by a Shoshone chief who came to see me while in San Francisco. I have also talked with some of the Sioux people who have rather the same attitude. The point is a very difficult one to get across to the general American public because a sizable proportion of Indians simply do not share our values. They just do not want to quotes, enhance and expand their participation in American society, close quotes, because they regard our ways as insane and our aggressive conquest of nature, use of technology as a violation of the earth, which, as they have not forgotten, we stole from them. Considering their attitudes to us and ours to them, and also their lack of our style of education, it is hard indeed for most Indians to compete successfully in our economy. I am afraid, therefore, that the net effect of this very well-intentioned bill will be the progressive loss of their land and increasing migration of Indians to city slums, for many of them will mortgage their land, blow the money in some unworkable enterprise, and then lose their land to the loner. I am reminded of the saying, in quotes, kindly let me help you or you'll drown, said the monkey putting the fish safely up a tree, end quotes. <laughs> Seriously, wouldn't it be better to respect the independence of the Indian nations, let them follow their own culture, and protect them from all further exploitation from whites? We need to preserve a greater variety of lifestyles in this world, since our own begins to look more and more suicidal. Mm. I mean, it's just amazing to me. Um, it's so relevant to this very day. Well, that just reminds me, I think, of another letter that he wrote to Reinhard Niebuhr, which was uh, really a, about somewhat the same subject about imperialism and the limitless exploitation of natural resources and um, how the, the world ceases to be solid and substantial. It becomes, and he used this phrase, a vast electric field in which anything is possible and in which the splendid boundaries of time and space are 
obliterated. And it's like, like here we have the internet and we have this grid, this electrical grid that's in, and satellite systems. And it's almost like he's, he's talking about here, right now, here's what's happening and, and really questioning that. And we're not really questioning it in, in the kind of depth of saying, okay, there are good things about this that has provided some nice things, but what else? How, how deep can we go? And I think that's what he was often pointing to. Right. I think so. Yeah. So, and uh, I would love maybe some other, other letters that, that we can share with our listeners that give this flavor. We uh, hear the 21-year-old uh, talking to Carl Jung, the Native Americans much later writing to a congressperson. And then uh, there's something maybe, Joan, you could share something about uh, his letter about Sabella's, the, mm-hmm. the restaurant. This was fun. It's uh, dated February 24, 1970, to Sabella's of, of Marin. Gentlemen, my wife and I have been fairly regular patrons of your restaurant since 1961. Last night, we wished to go out to dinner and found that the Trident was closed, the Blue Fin poorly supplied, the Buckeye closed, and the adjoining Mexican restaurant hopelessly crowded. We then bethought us of Sabella's. But from your establishment, we were rudely excluded by an arrogant young man for the peccadillo of wearing sandals over bare feet. Otherwise, we were elegantly, if informally, dressed. Now, your food has been consistently excellent, but you are not the St. Francis Hotel. If you have an eye for the future, bear it in mind that you are operating in an area where an increasing number of young people, your customers to be, are unwilling to dress like morticians. By chance, you might have seen my article, Murder in the Kitchen, in the December issue of Playboy magazine, which is, among other things, a discussion of the barbarous fare served in most American restaurants. Your own chef or chefs are very competent, and my standards may be considered fussy. But why must we be obliged to come to your restaurant with our feet sweatily enclosed in wool and tight leather, observing a mere ritual which, however appropriate in the snows of Chicago, is unnecessary in California? I really believe that a change in your policy is in order as well as an apology to a longtime customer. Yours very truly, Alan Watts. Oh, that's so great. And that reminds me, uh, he did an, an article for Playboy, Wealth Versus Money, and he got an award, and he says, um, thank you very much. In some ways, I prefer this award to getting an honorary degree from Harvard. So it gives a flavor of his humor, right. and, you know, he, he just, uh, his tongue-in-cheek and, and how he could just sort of cut people to... To, hey, what is really important here? Come on, right. let's get with it. You know, so that that was awfully fun. I I love that. There's another letter that's quite serious that he wrote about um, death. The answer to someone who I think was facing a life-threatening illness, and maybe you can share that because it was really powerful. Yes, this was uh, written in uh, August of 1970. And this was a very dear friend of his who was, in fact, dying and did die. If this letter does not reach you while you are still on this level of existence, 
I would like your sister to read it to you at your funeral. I have studied much lately with those Buddhist lamas of Tibet, and I believe they know a thing or two about the basics of existence. They have sat for hours and days in those quiet mountains, feeling out and testing the root and ground of consciousness. They say that when you die, you have an immediate experience of a clear, transparent, and electric blue vivid light, which is the same as the love that makes the world go round. They suggest at that moment you give in completely to absorption in this light because it is the final ground and base of your own mind and the energy of the universe. (laughs) Hmm. If, however, you can't make it, you will next experience visions of everything which you have ever considered sublimely blissful but must understand that it is secondary to the clear light and simply a product of your own mind. If you get caught up in this blissful vision, it will automatically turn. If you run away from this horrifying vision, you will seek shelter in a womb and thus be reborn according to your karma. Des, I don't know whether all this should be taken factually or symbolically, but just watch out in case it happens. I know only that the real I is the eternal energy of this universe and that it is the nature of energy to vibrate, to come, and to go. Thus, the word Tathagata, which is the name for a Buddha, means equally one who comes and thus uh, one who goes. It would be stupid and irrelevant for me to wish you well, for what else is there? All nature follows gravity, for doesn't one fall both into love and into the grave? So keep on falling, and at the end of the down, you will swing up. Well, my dear, much love from us both, and let the ideas, the words, life and death, drop away from your mind, as ever, Alan. Oh, that's so powerful. I mean, he left us with what a powerful image to contemplate at the time of death and what that might be about. I want to remind our listeners that I am here with both Anne and Joan Watts, They are the daughters of Alan Watts, and they have curated and edited his letters in a book called The Collected Letters of Alan Watts. And if you want to know more about the work, you can go to Anne's website, annewatts.com, and she spells her name A-N-N-E, annewatts, W-A-T-T-S, dot com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Anne and Joan Watts. They are the daughters of Alan Watts, the British-born American philosopher and prolific writer, lecturer, who died in 1973, but left us with a huge legacy of tapes and lectures and his letters, which are just fascinating. One of the commentaries that you have in the book, and I really want to thank you both for holding our hand through the letters that that really give us a context in which to hold all of them. It, it's just a marvelous read, so I, I really want to encourage people to pick it up. And one of them later on in the book, this is about your daughter, and she tells about one of the last times that she was with her grandfather in the kitchen. It's just such a poignant story. Could could you repeat that for us, Anne? It's not fresh in my mind at the moment, but um, it, it was the, actually the last time we saw him alive. It was uh, Easter of 1973, and I was living in Raleigh, North Carolina at the time when we drove up to uh, Pennsylvania, where he was giving a seminar. And Mira describes coming downstairs early in the morning, and Alan was in the kitchen. And it was one of those rare moments where she got to be with him alone. And she said he was looking at her just intently. And he came over to her, and he said, do you see that foil on the stove? I think this is how it went. He, he, so he had her hold out her arm, and it took very little effort for him to push her arm down. And then he had her focus on the foil. And, uh, and it, again, he had her put her arm out, and he put all of his pressure onto her arm. She could feel his hands trembling, and he couldn't move her arm. And the experience for her was a profound lesson that she carried with her for, she still carries with her for all her life. She said it was a really profound moment for So her. in the profound, it's like her strength it was a, you can change your own personal strength right. through this kind of focus. I right. mean, it's, it's not that her body was the same, but with that kind of focus. And he was demonstrating to her, right. almost like giving her this somatic lesson right. Before even right. precognitive, knowing right. that, that that these were some of the last moments he would have with right. her. With no need to explain or lecture or anything, just to give her the experience and trust her to know what to do with it. Yeah. 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 It is beautiful. Yeah. There was also part part of the book some some of his later experimentation with psychedelics, and that was Certainly during the time, part of it was during the time when it was very legal. And he had some opinions about that, and, and they were really reflected in the letters. So is there anything that you can tell us about the psychedelics and what he felt about them? Well, <clears throat> he was very interested in, in um, mind-altering drugs as uh, possible ways to uh, influence uh, samadhi or satori basically as a shortcut versus, you know, sitting long hours meditating or whatever. And when uh, Larry and uh, Alpert were doing their studies, he was in touch with them. I think he'd uh, initially been alerted to 
that you could use of these drugs through Aldous Huxley and um, a few other uh, contemporaries of that time. So he sort of became a, a guinea pig for a lot of their study in terms of taking um, lysergic acid and uh, recording uh, what went on uh, during that. In his mind, it was a religious experience. And I think he got quite upset when it became, especially with Tim Leary, something that people were going to do all the time. Well, like Drop a recreational, acid, like a recreational right. drug or a party drug or whatever. He was very clear about that. And he was very clear about the difference between that particular mind-altering substance like mescaline or peyote and uh, LSD from cocaine and, and, and the right. other amphetamines. Yeah, know. he didn't think it should be, I think, what is it, a class one uh, drug now. And, and he really fought uh, or, you know, wrote consistently to uh, government people about the fact that uh, both marijuana and LSD and peyote and so on should not be Ill, uh, illegal. It shouldn't be. Criminalized. He felt that there there could be some good psychological benefits, exactly. even for psychosis. Mm-hmm. That that it could be, and I think that they used it. Uh, experiments like Ralph Metzner was at the hospital in Napa, right. where they're for their criminally insane, and did some experiments that were just just extraordinary in mm-hmm. helping these people to to. Leave, lead a more normal life, right. a, a more balanced life. So it, it, but then of course it all then became a, a illegal and he, right. So he wrote about that. Yep. Yes, that it was uh, something that he was very much against, because he said basically that it will become uh, criminally uh, used in that sense. You know that it will be on the black market and people will get uh, drugs that are not pure. Uh, that was a big concern to him. And so and I think that also he, <laughs> he wrote s- several letters that, that I read that where he felt strongly about law enforcement enforcing morality. Absolutely. He... Uh... He was. He wanted to uh, keep people, uh, keep the police out of the bedroom, and uh, and he really he thought that police should be our friends and our helpers. He wanted them not to carry guns. He said in England they don't carry guns, and um, and there's far less crime in England than than we have here in the United States, and um, he felt like, you know, the police should be serving us and being our friends rather than being um, uh, moral uh, people who would judge what happened in the bedroom or um, or police these drugs we've just been talking about. Um, and so that's, that's uh, he said, uh, here I can just read something about this, the bad image of the police. We are running into very serious trouble by reason of lack of respect for and mistrust of our police. How pertinent is that mm-hmm, today? Mm-hmm. Obviously, we cannot revamp and retrain the entire force, but we are embarrassing and confusing our policemen to ask by asking them to act as armed clergymen, enforcing sumptuary laws against crimes without victims. 
laws in fundamental violation of the constitutional separation of church and state, confine their duties to traffic control, protection against violence and robbery, and giving due assistance to lost children and little old ladies. Let them have no authority over private morals. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, <laughs> he, he said, question needing no answer, what sort of character would volunteer for service on the vice squad? <laughs> <laughs> and he then talks about reformation of the marijuana laws. We have hundreds of young men and women in jail for violation of purely ritual crime at the great expense of taxpayers. I am a research consultant to the Maryland State Hospital Project for investigation of mind-changing drugs and can say with some authority that all scientific and rigorously conducted research as to the use and effects of this herb has, as of this date, been showing that it is far less deleterious than the use of alcohol. Furthermore, prosecution of possessors of marijuana is seriously hindering, time-wise, the normal business of our courts. Yeah. Um, and, and what year did he write that? He wrote that February 28, 1969. 1969. Yes. So here we and are. And here we are. Yeah, here we are. And here right. we are. We're talking about really going into a huge um, law enforcement of opioids. And I, I, I don't know where I stand on all of that. I mean, I'm, I'm not clear about how to approach it, but to approach it as law enforcement might need to be questioned, that it might need to have a different approach. Not that there's not a problem or that, that a concern about it is what I'm trying to say, but, but maybe our approach maybe isn't law enforcement. Uh, I, I, you know, it's just up, up for grabs how, right. how we do it and right. at least to have a discussion. And um, so I, I just wanted to end our time together to just read uh, the poem that Gary Snyder mm-hmm. uh, shared with, with all of you at, at the funeral. And this is the poet Gary Snyder uh and I'm going to read that poem. He said, He blazed out the new path for all of us and came back and made it clear, explored the side canyons and deer trails and investigated cliffs and thickets. Many guides would have had us travel single file like mules in a pack train and never leave the trail. Alan taught us to move forward like the breeze, tasting the berries, greeting the blue jays, learning and loving the whole terrain. Just well said, Gary. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you both for being on New Dimensions today with us. Well, thank you so much for having us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Dave. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with mm-hmm. Anne and Joan. Watts, and they are the daughters of the late Alan Watts, and they have together curated, edited, and commented on a book of letters called The Collected Letters of Alan Watts. And if you want to know more about Ann Watts, uh, she has a website, annwatts.com. Ann spells with an E, A-N-N-E, Watts, W-A-T-T-S, dot com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3637. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.